Well, thank you, Leonard, for having me out here. This is, I have to say, by far the most beautiful studio I've ever recorded a podcast in. Well, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here with you in, in our natural habitat here in Maine. And I want to thank you for inviting me to, uh, to be, uh, interviewed here with you, Steve. Um, I think what you're all doing at the Maine Policy Institute and at the Maine Wire, uh, is, uh, is really important, um, for our state here, uh, and for, um, for citizens who care deeply about freedom and opportunity and, and human dignity. So thank you for your efforts. It's been a privilege to be able to support your work. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that. I'm going to feel like a, a bad house guest after that praise by bringing up some of the people who have criticized your work. You know, I, I think people, people in Maine uh, who are familiar with the Maine Wire probably know you as the uh, individual in Bar Harbor who has drawn protests. Uh, especially around um, uh, uh, the Dobbs decision, uh, around Justice Kavanaugh, some of the more uh, the controversies that you've been associated with, have attracted some of your neighbors to come by, not with lasagnas and <laughs> welcoming house gifts, but uh, with uh, really some some unfriendly terms, and even clashes with law enforcement. So I think this will be a great opportunity for uh, the people in Maine to uh, get to know you a little bit better. My pleasure to talk to you this morning and and. Uh you know, think about some of the issues that are on your mind. So the, the, one of the first things I wanted to do was let you respond to some of the criticisms that have been leveled against you. Beginning somewhere around 2016, you became a lightning rod for criticism. Some of it, I think, really started when President Trump had the opportunity to uh, appoint his first Supreme Court justice, and you were brought on in, a, in an advisory capacity to do that. Uh, but one one uh, item that really stuck out to me was a uh, a slate writer compared you to the Hamburglar. I don't know if you're familiar with the Hamburglar, <laughs> the McDonald's uh, character who steals children's uh, Big Macs. I vaguely remember the Hamburglar. She wrote, she wrote, uh, Leonard Leo is the Hamburglar. He's running around stealing American rights and freedoms. And we're like, oh yeah, that guy. Let's get a lengthy statement from him about how bad liberals are. What the hell? That guy's the story. So are you the story and are you running around America like the Hamburglar trying to steal rights and freedoms from people? I've always felt that uh, my calling in the conservative movement was to defend the Constitution as it's written. And, and in particular, really, Steve, to defend those structural limits on government power that are in the Constitution – and I've always felt that the reason to do that is because when you have recognizable and enforceable limits on the power of the state, things like separation of powers and checks and balances and federalism, when you have those things and they are respected and enforced by um, the branches of our government, you are preserving the dignity and worth of people because the greatest threat to human dignity the greatest threat to freedom uh, is a state that has no constraints or limits on its power. So when 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 I think about the courts and when I think about rights, um, the first thing I think about is we have a we have a constitution that first and foremost protects our dignity and our worth as people by limiting the power of the state. I've been to probably close to 48 countries in my lifetime. And what I notice time and again all over the world 
is that the places where there is the least dignity, the places where there is the least individual worth, are those where there are no recognizable and enforceable limitations on the power of government. So that's what called me to the conservative movement, Steve. That's that's what drove my interest. And of course, for many years, the one of the great impediments to having a structural constitution that was respected, limits on government power that were respected, was the Supreme Court. A court that was not interpreting the Constitution the way it was written, uh, a court that was um, that was not recognizing the value of those very specific limits on government power, the way we divide and separate power, the way we limit it in very explicit ways. And I and I was very committed, among among others, I was very committed to trying to revive uh, a respect. For that constitution, and that's how I came to to do what I'm doing. Um, and so, if if you want to protect rights in our country, uh, uh, the first thing you need to do is you need to constrain the power of government, and you need to make sure that government actors respect the limits on power imposed upon them by the constitution. Then, of course, you can begin to talk about other rights: freedom of speech, freedom of religion. Um, Freedom from unreasonable searches and seizures, rights to property. I mean, those are all very important rights, but those rights will be meaningless. Those will just be um, worth less than the paper they're written on if you don't have a government uh, that is uh, constrained in its powers. Do you think some of the confusion or some of the criticism of you is motivated by a misunderstanding or a disagreement over what is meant by rights? Um, going back to FDR, uh, the conception of positive rights. You know, I think the, the you know the slate writer who called you the Hamburglar probably probably thinks of uh, healthcare as a right, and and so how do you how do you protect that right by constraining the government? Do you think there's just a confusion of the language that the left and the right use when they speak about rights? In this country, uh, rights are defined by our Constitution and the Bill of Rights. So maybe a better question would be, do you think that the left misunderstands what rights are? I think the left misunderstands what we define as rights in our country sometimes because, frankly, those are defined by the Bill of Rights. And so, you know, if you look at the Bill of Rights, what are the core rights that Americans have? Well, if if you start with the Bill of Rights, those are things like um, freedom of expression, freedom of speech, Freedom of religion, the right of petition and assembly, um, uh, rights of private property to not have government co- uh, confiscate your property without just compensation, freedom from unreasonable searches and seizures. Uh, you have rights to the due process of law, right? Um, you have right to a jury trial. Most of these rights that we're talking about in the Bill of Rights are freedom from government oppression, freedom from government interference. They are political and civil rights. And then, of course, you have the Reconstruction Amendments that were wrought after the Civil War, you know, equal protection of the law, right? Again, freedom from from government abuse. So, so as you would put it, or I think as you were alluding to, Steve, those are in a way what we call negative rights. You know, high-minded yeah. philosophers call those negative rights. The idea that you have rights, um, you have rights um, to be free from government overreach, right? Now, if 
if people want to pass laws that provide positive rights, uh, if if people want rights to health care, if people want rights to food, if people want rights to affordable housing, if people want rights to clean water, if they want guaranteed four weeks of vacation like Europe has, um, there's a way to get those things. And that's by going to Congress or by going to state legislatures and asking the political process to provide those rights and guarantees legislation because they're not in the Bill of Rights. And if a Congress or if a state legislature has the authority to pass such legislation, and sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't, then those are rights and entitlements that would be guaranteed. Um, but, but it's not the job of a court to decide that those rights exist. Um, those rights only exist if someone in the political process enacts them. Uh, and those positive rights historically um, have not been recognized in republics uh, like the United States. Um, mostly the founders thought about rights uh, against government overreach. Earlier you alluded to uh, kind of a change that's come about in the court, uh, in part through your work. How would you characterize the, the court that came before the court we have now? I guess in, in comparing the way that they approached decisions versus the way that the court now is approaching decisions. First of all, I think one of the great misconceptions in America about the court is that we should think about it based on the results that they reach. And of course, that's how the press generally talks about it. Oh, look, the court um, did this on abortion or it did this on religion or it, or it did this on the environment, right? That's not what a court is all about. Um, the question isn't the result, really. The question is, how is the court reaching its decisions? Now, the current court, um, in, for the most part, is beginning to reach its decisions by looking at the text of the Constitution or a particular law statute that's before it and ascertaining the plain, public, ordinary meaning of those words. Uh, it's looking at... Um, the original meaning of constitutional provisions at the time they were adopted. And that's the right way for a court uh, to interpret the law because the courts are not meant to make law. They're meant simply to interpret it according to what the political process desired. Of course, that was not always the way the Supreme Court interpreted our law and isn't the way it always interprets it today. But but it was certainly with greater frequency interpreting the law without those normal constraints. It was not honing to the text and original meaning of the Constitution or statutes that came before it. And that's where the real debate took place in our country. What was the proper role of the court? What role did the court have in interpreting the Constitution? Was the court bound by the four corners of the document? Um, did the court have a role to play in constraining its own power and in constraining the power of the other branches of our government? And, and, and many conservatives thought the answer was yes, the court, the court needs to play, uh, a more restrained role. Uh, it needs to interpret, um, uh, what's in the Constitution. It needs to enforce the rights that are in the Constitution, but at the same time, it shouldn't be creating rights that aren't in there. And that's where the debate began. And it really started in the early 1980s when when President Ronald Reagan started um, appointing judges and justices who ascribed to what we would call original meaning. 
the idea that the Constitution has discernible, precise meaning based on its text, based on its structure, and based on um, the way in which it was understood at the time of its framing. And, and again, if people don't like what the Constitution means according to its text and original meaning, there is a process for amending it. And we've gone through that process on many occasions. Gavin Newsom, Gavin Newsom just suggested the 28th Amendment to, uh, uh, I guess, take away the Second Amendment. <laughs> I that's guess, right. I don't think that's how he would describe it, but uh, he's, he's at least acknowledged that there's a constitutional process to change that. There is a constitutional process to change, uh, to change the Constitution, to add rights, to subtract rights, uh, to create new structures in government, if that's what people want. Uh, and so there is a process for that, and it's, and it's not the court. Uh, and, and that, at the end of the day, is where the battle lines have been drawn. You had a Supreme Court, which since really the 1930s, 1940s, um, started to take upon itself much more authority and power uh, to create rights, uh, to expand the power of the national government without any warrant under the real text and, and meaning of the Constitution. Um, and that's where the battle lines were drawn between liberals and conservatives. And so if the liberals aren't approaching a Supreme Court decision based on the plain meaning of the text, then what are they in your view? Is it the, is it the opinion of experts that they're trying to weigh? Is it the outcome that they're preferring? I mean, if, if 80s, 90s, and then the, the current court, how are they making decisions? The alternative to a textualist, originalist interpretation of the Constitution is a results-oriented form of jurisprudence. In other words, what do you personally think is right and just? So if you think someone should have a right to do something, um, then that should be read into the Constitution. If you think government needs more power to solve a problem, then that needs to be read into the Constitution. And there are many people who believe that that's the game the Supreme Court played for several decades Basically, when they saw a problem that they thought needed needed a solution, that they personally thought needed a solution, they went ahead and they created it um, without any authority. And that's really dangerous because you might like, you know, what the Supreme Court does in a particular case um, by overreaching and doing something that normatively you desire, maybe a growth in the size of government that isn't warranted by the Constitution or a new right that's been created. You may like that. But 5, 10, 15 years from now, you may not like what a Supreme Court does uh, when it overreaches. Uh, and again, you know, you have to go back to what we first started talking about, which is if you really want to preserve dignity and freedom, you have to have government institutions that respect the limits on their power. And the court has to respect the limits on its power. One of the other criticisms that's been leveled against you is this idea of dark money, anonymous donors. And, uh, you know, I, I know that there's a, there's a long tradition in American political culture going back to the Federalist Papers of anonymous speech. It's kind of taken on this new dynamic where it seems like, uh, you know, left wing money is battling right wing money and there's a, a lack of transparency. What do you, what do you make of the phenomenon of anonymous money being how close you are to it? Do you think that it's ultimately healthy for uh, American society, culture, politics to have to to allow this extent of anonymous political giving? Well, first of all, I, I've always kind of chuckled at this idea that somehow um, I'm involved with dark money because does does anybody really doubt what it is that you know 
I'm helping to support? I mean, <laughs> I don't think so. Um, no, I don't think am, so. Am I? I mean, I think I think I've been pretty transparent about what I believe in, uh, and pretty transparent about how I think, uh, uh, you know, the rule of law should should be administered in our country. Uh, and so I, I I don't think there's a whole lot of uh, opacity or darkness about what it is that um that that um I and the institutions I'm a part of help to support. But look, you touched upon the history of our country. Our our country has a rich history of anonymous giving, um, going all the way back to the Revolutionary War, uh, the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, the Women's Suffrage Movement, the Civil Rights Movement of the 1950s and 1960s, the Gay Rights Movement of the 70s and 80s. Um, all of those movements were, um, in important part, uh, or in, or in significant part sometimes, supported by anonymous giving. And there's a reason for it, right? There's a reason for it. And the reason is because the power of ideas, the power of the ideas ought to matter more than the peculiar personalities of the people who are supporting them. We should judge what we want to do in this country by the intellectual and moral force of an idea not by the quirky personality or looks or wealth or or whatever of the people supporting it. Look at the underlying idea. Does it make sense? Is it morally justifiable? Is it intellectually supportable? And that's why people give anonymously, so that people can focus their attention on the ideas. Now, don't take my word for it. There is a reason why people on the left, like George Soros and Hans Wies, and Jeff Skoll, and Jeff Bezos. There's a reason why the donors to the Arabella Network, a billion dollars or so per year, okay? There's a reason why most of those people give a decent chunk of money anonymously. And it's because the ideas aren't about them. They want the ideas to stand up independently based on their own moral and intellectual force. And so it, it's, it's not surprising to me that on both the right and on the left, and the New York Times has written about this, there's a lot of so-called dark money or anonymous giving. And uh, full disclosure, I've written about the Arab, Arabella Network's yeah. uh, dark money. And, you know, again, I think both sides, or at least the most significant players on both sides, recognize that there's a reason for this. And it's, 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 it's not to hide in the shadows. It's because we want ideas judged by their own moral and intellectual force. And it shouldn't really matter who is supporting them. Um, what really matters is what those ideas stand for and how they work and whether they have the force of persuasion. Um, so it's really a bogeyman. Okay. It's, it's, look. It's, it's a cheap way of not having a serious debate about the underlying issue. Okay, there's plenty of money in this country on the left and on the right. In fact, the left outspends the right at least four to one. Okay, so, so having people talk about dark money and criticizing conservatives for that is just silliness. Put that aside and have a meaningful conversation about what you believe 
if you think a conservative idea is wrong, then tell us why you think it's wrong. If people think a liberal idea is wrong, then tell tell the progressives why they think that idea is wrong. Dark money discussions are are a very clunky and silly proxy for the more serious dis- discussions we ought to be having about public policy. And, and nonetheless, there's a serious branding effort underway to call this the the dark money court. You know, there's I, I was listening to the New York Magazine and New York Times podcasts dwelling on dark money at length. How, how much of that do you think is a, motivated by a, a desire to unmask whoever is financially supporting this effort or idea you disagree with so that they can replicate the strategy that they've tried with you? Because you're identified and they know you and they can come here and they can harass your family and make things uncomfortable for you. I think when people talk about the dark money court, uh, it's wrought out of frustration that this court is making decisions that they disagree with. They don't like the fact that the Supreme Court said that there is no right to abortion in the Constitution and that that very significant moral and political question needs to be decided by the elective branches of a state and federal government. They don't like the fact that the court has decided that the 14th Amendment really does mean color and blindness and therefore... Um, you know, uh, racial preferences at universities and colleges can't, can't really stand, um, the force of reason under the, uh, Constitution. They have serious disagreements about what the court is doing. And so when they talk about dark money in this context, Steve, what they're really doing is they are, they are trying to damage the reputation of the court or of individual members of the court because they disagree with them. They're trying to attack the institution. And, and the fact of the matter is that any even casual observer of the Supreme Court, you know, honestly knows in his heart and soul, honestly knows that these justices, both left and right, aren't influenced, okay, by, you know, so-called dark money, okay? These justices came onto the court with very firm convictions and ideas about what their role was to be as a judge. And many of them came onto the court with predisposed notions about what the Constitution meant in different contexts. And these outside, um, you know, um, uh, campaigns, okay, or in some instances, um, you know, relationships that the justices have with families. That was one, one thing I wanted to get into, too. Yeah. ProPublica, I'm sure, you've yeah. seen, has, is advancing this theory that your strategy is you, you identify a Supreme Court justice and you pull a billionaire <laughs> out of your network and you connect them together and therefore uh, they're, they're controlled by the vast right-wing conspiracy so, the rest of their term. So, Steve, let's go back to Chief Justice William Rehnquist in 1985. William Rehnquist in 85. Robert Bork in 87, Clarence Thomas in 91, um, you know, then of course moving forward from there, Sam Alito, um, uh, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Barrett, uh, even John Roberts. Those were really contentious confirmation hearings 
really contentious confirmation battles. Uh, a lot of allegations being thrown about. A lot of senators signaling that it was going to be the end of the world if this nominee or that nominee was confirmed. Okay? The less special interest groups and the media and, uh, and, and, and Democrat senators, they knew going into those nomination and confirmation battles what those justices were likely to be like because those, those nominees, um, made very clear what their jurisprudential strategy was going to be on the court, how they were going to interpret the Constitution. And so it, it's, it's not as though, um, you know, this was any secret and it's not as though, um, these individual justices, um, were, were, were somehow changing their minds. These interest groups and these Democrat senators would not have fought as hard as they did, okay, if they didn't think these jurists were going to come out differently than they are today. So they, they knew going into this that the jurisprudence of our court was likely to change because the methods of interpretation and the respect for the Constitution as it's written was going to begin to sort of filter into, um, filter into the institution. Um, and, and, and so, you know, no one can, I don't think anyone can really seriously believe that these justices are influenced by outside friendships, you know, a dinner party, a fishing trip, uh, a plane ride. Um, and, and by the way, if the left really thought that, then guess what? The conversation we have today would look a little bit different. Let me give you one example. Let's take Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, the now Legal Defense and Education Fund uh, named uh, a, a lecture series in her honor and had her presence there. Uh, in addition to that, at one point, some years before that, she gave an autographed opinion to the now Legal Defense and Education Fund for, for auctioning at one of their fundraisers. Now Legal Defense and Education Fund is often before the U.S. Supreme Court writing briefs, arguing cases, filing amicus briefs. Does anyone really think that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was somehow influenced by that relationship that she had? No. And of course, the left doesn't bring these things up, even though arguably they're worse than some of the things they're bringing up in the case of conservative justices, because they know in their heart of hearts that these justices on the court are extremely intelligent, extremely capable, strong convicted people, um, who are going to decide what they decide based on their intellect uh, and, and their own sense of integrity. Um, similarly, you know, let's take that documentary that got tons of attention, RBG, right? That documentary became the epicenter of a massive public relations campaign to make the Supreme Court an issue for voters in the 2018 and then 2020 elections. Okay. Now, um, you know, has anyone said, oh, Ruth Ginsburg, you know, she allowed herself to be a pawn of the political left. Um, you know, she became a symbol for, um, for these, for these two elections. For the DNC. And for the DNC. Um, has anyone on the left said that? The fact of the matter is that the movie was actually funded in part by participant media, which was founded and chaired by Jeff Skoll, who was given millions and millions of dollars to Arabella Advisors, which is one of the primary 
um, attackers of the court. Um, but again, you know, the left isn't bringing up any of these examples. And the reason is because at the end of the day, they really don't believe. They really don't believe that, that the court is influenced by some of these outside, um, relationships or shows of hospitality that people offer them. Um, and, uh, and so again, we can have this sort of street theater about dark money or we can have street theater about, oh, are these justices on the take? All of these, all of these are strategies for avoiding the tough job of defending the moral and intellectual force of your position. Okay? And that's what they should be doing. Not what they're doing now. Because all they're doing now is they're unnecessarily damaging the credibility and respectability of an organization or an institution, the Supreme Court. It's very, very important for upholding the rule of law. But do you think that the, the damage to the institution is unnecessary from their point of view? Or that do they view that as a casualty of the long-term objective, which is to pack the court, to uh, render it an illegitimate institution, uh, find some way to take away the power of the court uh, because it's doing things that they don't agree with? I, I don't know exactly what their end game is. Um, I suppose that if they damage the court enough... Um, they can make an argument that, um, you know, uh, it needs to be expanded and there needs to be more members to create equipoise in, in the institution. I, I, I guess that's one thing they could be doing. Seems like Senator Warren, uh, Senator Whitehouse, seems like they're very clearly saying that, uh, you know, it, w- it won't be legitimate until a politicized body adds more justices at the right moment to have a particular that could uh, set be, of politics. Yeah, that 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 could be the game that they're trying to play. The the other possibility is that um you know uh they they believe that um demonizing the court is one way to mobilize their political base in elections. Um uh that's a possibility too. So I, I don't I don't know exactly what um strategy they're employing uh and I mean, what I, what I, what I do know is what undergirds, um, their view, which is that they're losing, they're losing issues and cases before the court that they, they don't want to lose and that historically were handed to them on a silver platter and they don't like the fact that they're now losing or have to actually earn, uh, you know, what it is that they want. Um, but, but how they see their strategy playing out, I'm, 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 I'm not sure. Um, I, I don't know. You have to ask them. So, uh, you, you, you talked about this being part of a strategy to mobilize voters, activists to win elections that immediately, immediately conjures to mind the leaking of the Dobbs decision, an overtly political act. Uh, supposedly there's been an investigation. No one has been identified. Um, I'd be curious to know. Um, what did you think when you first discovered that that had happened? Um, do you have any confidence? that the election is going, I mean, the investigation is going to get to the bottom of this. Do you have any theories about which justice might have leaked it? Uh, I have no, uh, I have, I have neither inside information or any theories about what happened there other than that it was, you know, um, leaked, um, 
by someone um, who clearly wanted to do damage to the institution. And I would assume uh, in that respect was, was, was probably not happy with the result in the Dobbs case. Who did it? Um, I don't think we'll ever know. Um, I think there are probably members of the court who rather wouldn't know. Uh, and they don't. What do you mean, what do you mean by that? Um, you know, um, you might not like what you find when you overturn a stone. And, uh, there, there might be people on the court who aren't really thrilled about having to have a full-blown investigation and they just want to get past it and move on. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I, I never had high hopes for, um, figuring out who it was. Um, you know, um, I think that's hard. I think that's really hard. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and, and look, you know, ultimately, uh, at this point, um, I think the, the important thing is for all of us to just recognize that, um, you know, when you demonize the court, when you, politicize the court when you intimidate harass and threaten justices to the point of in one instance attempting an assassination against one of them um this is the kind of behavior that um is 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 going to become more commonplace do do you think that the kavanaugh uh, confirmation somehow changed the politics of the court i mean they they came out and accused this guy of gang rape um with very little evidence multiple rapes do you think that that was a, a moment when our our politics around the court, the way the contemporary American media and political activists think about these court fights, or was that, I, I guess, were the stakes always that high and were the fights always that nasty? I don't think it started um, with the Kavanaugh confirmation process. I think it, it, as I think I alluded to earlier, I think it started way earlier than that. Um, I think we saw elements of this during the confirmation hearing of um, William Rehnquist to be Chief Justice of the United States when they made scurrilous allegations of voter intimidation in Arizona, respecting him. I think um, uh, the politics of personal destruction loomed large in the Bork confirmation hearings. Yes, it was in part motivated by sort of intellectual disagreements, but they also really tried to demonize him from the standpoint of his personality and his demeanor. Uh I think it reached a high point in the in in pre two thousand with the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearing and the allegations uh, leveled by um, Anita Hill and, and the special interest groups on the left that backed her. I think all of that um, fundamentally changed the character and tone of confirmation hearings, and I think that what happened with with Brett Kavanaugh was a natural extension of that. Um, uh, it's it's very unfortunate, but. Um, that is the world we live in. Um, and, um, again, when you, you know, you have to remember that, you know, um, the left had a stranglehold on the court and its jurisprudence for the better part of 60, 70 years. And, um, it, it just, you know, they're, they're not just going to, you know, throw their hands up and walk away as they see the court fundamentally changing. And, and being transformed as a court that's committed to the text and the original meaning of the Constitution. They're just not going to walk, you know, uh, quietly into the night. The prominence that you 
uh, reached in American politics is inextricably bound up with President Trump. I'm wondering, what did you, what was your thought process like when you found out that Antonin Scalia had died suddenly? Uh, Trump's on the cusp of clinching the nomination. Suddenly, it's one of those moments where politics just changes radically in that moment. What were you thinking in that moment? When did you realize that, you know, President Trump was going to be perhaps a vehicle to bring to fruition your dream of bringing about the court that you've uh, described earlier in this interview? Well, when I, I still remember vividly, uh, the day that, uh, Justice Scalia died, I was, I was in the sunroom of my house in Virginia and I got a phone call from a family member who told me that, um, uh, the, um, the news had not yet, um, leaked, but that, um, the justice was, was found, um, Having passed overnight, uh, on a, uh, at a hunting lodge in, um, in Texas. And, and he was, uh, like an uncle to me in a lot of ways. Tremendously good and generous man. Um, he was an inspiration for me professionally as well. Uh, and he was an absolutely central figure in the transformation of our American legal culture, uh, bringing us back to the rule of law, uh, bringing us back to um, the Constitution as written and originally understood. Um, he's a towering intellectual, man of tremendous integrity. And so, needless to say, the first reaction was, oh my goodness, we've lost, we've lost a man who is, is, is probably one of the most important public servants um, throughout American history, but certainly, you know, in, in, in modern history. After kind of, um, recovering from that, um, personal, um, grief and personal blow, um, reason had to take over and you had to start thinking about, well, what, what does this mean? Of course, the day he died was the, was the night of the first Republican, um, primary debate. And so this was very likely to come up. And, um, I had gotten a couple of phone calls from, um, presidential candidates or from my staff, which had been called by presidential candidates or their staffs, asking how to think about this. Was Trump one of them? Uh, he was. His campaign reached out to one of my colleagues, uh, and then we had a conversation about what might be uh, uh, a viable approach to um, to addressing the issue. And so I guess the question at that time is, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but how are you going to fight the uh, the, uh, the nomination of somebody else, right? Because Obama's, Obama's going to pick somebody. What's the Republican well, position going to be? Do you well, support? Well, Steve, there were two different, really, there were two different theaters of battle, really. There was what Republican primary candidates for president were going to say about the, the justice, the court, and what they were going to do as president. And so all of them had to think about how they were, they were going to talk about judicial selection in a way that was much more pointed than in previous presidential races. Okay. And the big question that the Trump campaign had was, um, uh, 
was, uh, you know, should, should we, should we go beyond what presidential candidates normally said? Which was just, oh, I'm gonna appoint people in the mold of Scalia and Thomas, and a quote, strict constructionist, which is a horrible term. Um, and go beyond that and actually name a couple names. And as you may remember, Steve, that's what, that's what Trump actually did. And that put out a big debate. list, right? Well, they did eventually, but what he did in that primary debate, which was very interesting, is he named two people. He named, he named Judge William Pryor, and he named Judge Diane Sykes, who were brand names in the conservative movement. So people knew what that meant. These were people who were originalists, textualists, understood the Constitution as written, uh, understood the importance of, of, a, of a limited judicial role in resolving issues. Um, so he knew what he was doing when he did that. And, and that was a pretty gutsy move. No, 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 no presidential candidate had previously waved around names of people who weren't already on the court. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that was a big deal. You certainly wouldn't see it on the Democratic side. Be, that'd be a tough territory for them to wave it, wade into. It'd be tough. <laughs> so, so, so that was the one battle, theater of battle, which was the presidential candidates and what they were going to say about judicial selection. And then the other was, what are you going to do about the vacancy? Right? Cause, you know, Barack Obama was, was an awful lot of time, president. awful lot of time left in the year. An awful lot of time left in the year. What are you going to do about it? Well, that was, that was a Mitch McConnell decision. And it was literally the day of the justices passing that McConnell basically put out word that this is a decision that the American people are going to have to make at the ballot box in November. One of the most consequential decisions in American politics, really. It was. And he was deeply committed to that proposition for two reasons. One, because I thought it, I, I really believe he thought that was the right answer. In other words, this is a consequential enough, big enough decision. We have a lame duck president. We have a deeply divided Senate. Let the American people make this decision. Let them go to the ballot box in November and let them, let them vote for a president who's going to have the awesome responsibility of filling this seat. Um, and there was some merit to that argument, a lot of merit to it in the sense that, um, you know, the American people generally didn't think about the awesome responsibility a president had to nominate and appoint justices. And this was a great opportunity for people to understand it was part of their franchise, part of their right to vote, uh, for a president to think about this. So, so that was, you know, I think one really big driving force for him. The other was he knew what the Democrats would do. Of course. The tables were turned. <laughs> 100%. You think Harry Reid's going <laughs> to... Well, and, 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 and it wasn't hard for him to figure out because... Because Chuck Schumer and Harry Reid had pretty much telegraphed yeah. that this is what they would do. They'd already at that point blown up the uh, filibuster yeah. for judicial nominations, and, and I think Mitch McConnell said, "You're going to regret." He did. This. So, so one, I think he had a true sort of belief in the political process and how democracy should work. And, and secondly, I think he figured, "Well, live by the sword, die by the sword. If if this is what you guys said you were going to do, then I guess we'll we'll play by your rules." That's and co- we'll do it cocaine, too. Mitch. I think it's the game. <laughs> uh, so anyway. Who do you think has been more influential in shaping the court as it is now? Mitch McConnell, Donald Trump, or Leonard Leo? I, I don't think that it's fair to single out anybody. First of all, it's not me. Okay. I think the people who have been most influential in shaping the court have been, first of all, a couple of the justices who serve on it. I think a lot of people saw what Justice Nino Scalia did on, in his career. I think a lot of people saw what Clarence Thomas believed in and what he's done in his life. 
now I think with greater frequency even Justice Alito. And I think those models have been the most important um, for people gaining an understanding of why the court needs to be what it is, what what what, what it is slowly becoming, which is a, a court committed to the Constitution as it's written. Um, I think that you know President Trump um, played an enormously uh, you know Im- important, bold, and audacious role in in um, in doing what he did. Um, I think Senator McConnell has been absolutely indispensable uh, throughout his career in making judges a really, really important issue in the U.S. Senate. But, you know, let's not forget, you know, there's there's a lot of other people. Um, there's, there's a whole conservative legal movement, tens of thousands of people who have, you know, um, talked about, written about, debated about, the proper role of the court over the course of 50 years. There's President Ronald Reagan, you know, who was really the first president to make judicial selection a priority. There was his attorney general, Edwin Meese, who was the first person to really join the debate politically about what's the proper role of a court and how should it do its job? What does the enterprise of judging look like? So this is a, you know, it, it took a village, okay? And, and that was, and that was that was the village, and it was a big one, um, you know. Um, so so I think this is a movement more than it is a cult of personality. It would not have been successful uh, but for Trump actually winning the election. And in retrospect, we learn a lot of things about um, how the media operated around the election, how what's come to be called the deep state operated around the election. This, uh, you know, the Golden Showers dossier, uh, some of the things that the FBI was doing to undermine and hamstring Trump's campaign, and uh, some words that uh, Chuck Schumer said right before Trump was inaugurated have uh, always kind of haunted me, and, and I thought that they haven't got enough attention. And he said that, you know, you don't mess with the deep state because they've got six ways from Sunday of coming back to get at you. Do you think that the, there's a, a role for the court, or, or what do you do to rein in uh, an administrative state or an intelligence community that is becoming political in ways that violate the law and certainly violate how the American people would expect elections to be conducted freely and, and fairly. What is it? I guess how, how should conservatives be thinking about the revelations that have, that, that have, have been uncovered about the 2016 election? Well, first of all, um, there are a lot of people who might not like this answer, but at the end of the day, um, we're a democracy or a republic, and um, what we face politically um, is is really of our own making. So, so if the American people want to see greater integrity, either in the electoral system or in the courts in the administrative state they need to be thinking very carefully about who they're electing they need to become engaged citizens they need to understand our system of government better and they need to be active active participants in the political process and uh, and and that's our biggest problem as a country you can't have government imbued with integrity and um, uh, a commitment to our values 
um, unless you have a, an electorate and a citizenry that understands what it is it's worth protecting in our country. And so that's the first thing. That's, that's gotta be the first thing. Um, and, and it's probably the most important thing. So secondly, you really shouldn't count on the courts, um, to solve your political woes. It's not going to happen. Um, courts are very clunky. They're not very good at solving really big problems that aren't pure legal issues. There are a lot of reasons for that. They don't have the powers that political bodies have. They can only hear what comes before them. They're bound by the four corners of the law. Um, you know, um, they are not moral arbiters. Okay. Uh, they don't have the capacity, uh, the tools to solve the big political or elector problems that you're talking about. They just don't. And so you can't count on the courts. Um, uh, and you really have to count on the electorate. Uh, and look, you know, I think there have been times in our political life when political leaders have made arguments um, that touch on these things. There have been some, uh, you know, for example, uh, presidential candidates who have talked about um, the overreach that occurs with the administrative state. I mean, gosh, in this, in, in, in our own state here, Steve, um, all you got to do is talk to the lobstermen and the ground fishermen. Mm-hmm. They'll tell you. They'll tell you how much overreach occurs with, you know, um, NOAA, the Commerce, NOAA, the Commerce Department, the, the fishery regulators. Um, they'll tell you. And, 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 you know, um, they're starting now to rise up, right? You've seen it. Mm-hmm. You've seen it. Oh, they're an absolute, they're, I mean, they're a political force in the state. They certainly punch above their weight. Yeah. And now political leadership is starting to listen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, so, so ultimately you need to have political leaders who are prepared to reign in the administrative state. You need to have political leaders who are prepared to appoint the right jurists. Um, you only get those kinds of political leaders if you, um, if you, um, have an electorate that is really attuned to what the problems are and, and how to solve them. Um, you know, um, goes back to something that Ed Meese once told me many, many years ago. He said, he said, personnel is policy. And that's how people have to think about the people they elect, right? Mm-hmm. They have to think about the people they elect that way, and they have to remember the people they elect are also the people who are going to appoint a lot of those other people. So at the bottom, at bottom, I really think it boils down to the voter. And, uh, you know, and, and unless we're educating our young to be responsible citizens who understand the Constitution and the role of government, we're going to continue to have a problem. So I, I think that answer gets at half of what we've seen happening in the 2016, but even more so the 2020 election, because nobody's voting on who is the CEO of Facebook. Uh, nobody, nobody gets to vote on who's running Twitter. And I think what we've seen is, as a result of some of the, the disclosures that came out when Elon Musk bought Twitter, did the Twitter files, uh, he really showed that it wasn't just the administrative s- state, the the personnel who ultimately traced back to an elected official. It was also, so, uh, you know, people in San Francisco, uh, you know, people who were engineers at Twitter who were working kind of uh, simpatico with what the FBI wanted to do in terms of censorship. And, you know, I, 
I guess maybe they wouldn't have, say, censored the Hunter Biden laptop story on their own, but they were doing a lot of censorship on their own without political instruction. So I guess how should how should conservatives be thinking about the remedy for something like that, which doesn't have this clear, bright line back to voting and traditional political activism? Well, you know, there have always been sort of forces in society that affect political outcomes in an outsized way. Um, For many, many years, you know, conservatives complained about the media. Still do. You know, yeah. Yeah, I do. (laughs) I know I do. (laughs) Um, and, And, you know, the outsized role that the media plays in shaping political discourse in our country, um, sometimes in a lopsided way. And of course, now we're getting to uh, alternative forms of media, you know, social media platforms, which is what you've been talking about. And now there's a conversation about those social media platforms, much the same way there was conversation about the, the, the three big networks for many years, right? And even the newspapers before And the newspapers yeah. before that. Uh, and then, you know, on top of that, you now have um, very large multinational corporations uh, that are um, more and more, you know, sort of injecting themselves into politics as opposed to just offering their normal goods and services. This is a tough issue for conservatives, right? Because conservatives generally believe that the power of the government should be limited, that... Um, we don't interfere in the marketplace um, unless there's authority to do so and, um, uh, you know, uh, unless there's a really good reason. And so I'm generally very hesitant uh, to begin to, um, you know, go down the path of regulating uh, big tech or the media or corporations. My hope... My hope is that um, we can persuade the American people that there's a problem with some of these institutions and that as a consuming public, they will begin to put appropriate free market pressure on those institutions. Now, will that work? Um, I don't know. But I can tell you that if you look at some of the battles that are going on right now in the woke capitalism space with institutions like BlackRock or Anheuser-Busch or Target or, um, you know, um, a number of other um, companies. That, well, I'll give you a you know, few examples right here in our state of Maine. Uh, there's a group called Equality Maine that uh, was influential in bringing about uh, the gay marriage referendum in Maine. After that, they needed a reason to exist, so they became the trans rights uh, organization, but they also backed the late-term abortion bill that just passed. Um, They had a list of corporate sponsors, uh, including uh, Hannaford and Central Maine Power, and we reported on the corporate sponsors who were backing essentially late-term abortion. Um, Hannaford and Central Maine Power are no longer listed as sponsors for equality Maine. Yeah, so so I think to the extent people are kind of thinking about how do we how do we get these outsized players to stop putting their thumbs on the scale, right? The first line of offense ought to be, you know, um consumers 
of these goods and services from these different enterprises, letting them know that they don't like what's going on and this is going to affect their bottom line. I'll tell you, I've, you know, in all the years I've watched politics and, you know, um, social interaction, I've never seen consumers able to move the dial as much as they have lately. Well, the, some people argue that's because Elon Musk bought Twitter. You know, there's a lot of people who, who think that the Bud Light boycott would not have been successful if there was some liberal in Silicon Valley who could have just flicked a switch and, and stopped it from trending. Well, there's a chicken and egg issue there, right? Yeah. Did Elon Musk buy Twitter to change the environment or did Elon Musk notice that the environment was moving in his direction and that he actually could coexist with it in some very effective ways? It's, it's hard to know. If he's a good businessman, he's put his finger in the wind and he's figured out that there's a demand there for something that he's going to offer. So it's not just Elon Musk, although, you know, to his credit, he's trying to, you know, upend practices at an institution that were pretty bankrupt um, and corrupt. Um, uh, I think it's also the fact that, you know, as a good entrepreneur, he recognizes that there is this pent up demand and that he was going to play into it. You know, and you're seeing that in a lot of other contexts too. You know, for example, you, you know, here we are doing a, you know, doing a, doing a podcast for Main Wire and for MPI. And, you know, why do you exist? You exist because there is now a greater amount of demand for, um, you know, alternative content. And, and, and so I think the first way to get at a lot of the rot that you've been talking about is to put it on the shoulders of the people. Okay, if you really believe in a democracy or a republic, which I think is a more apt way to talk about the United States, if you really believe in that, then it's really incumbent upon the people themselves to rise up and say, we're not interested in this and we're going to do everything we can to push in the other direction. And I do think that that is in certain ways starting to happen. Now, whether it gains enough momentum to completely turn the tide and to crush uh, excessive liberal dominance in various areas uh, that's yet to be seen you mentioned BlackRock um, Larry Fink basically synonymous with ESG um, it's a, a form of investing that's really taken over the uh, state workers pension funds it's a, a big issue here in Maine uh, in Florida Governor DeSantis and his administration uh, successfully divested from ESG funds do you see that as a, a successful avenue for uh, conservatives politically to uh, assert that kind of economic power? And what do you think the long-term consequences would be of, of something, a, a successful movement to uh, combat and undermine the ESG impulse that Black, BlackRock is leading? Well, first of all, I, I, I just want to push back on one thing there, which is that I don't think this is a conservative or a liberal issue. Okay. Um if you are preparing for your retirement, you, whether you're a liberal or a conservative, a Democrat, a Republican, an independent, a libertarian, whatever you are, if you're preparing for your retirement, I hope you're expecting whatever pension fund or investment fund you're in to be maximizing the returns on your dollars. Because if they're not, you may not be able to retire. And you may not believe anything for your children or your grandchildren. So, so, so this is not a conservative or liberal issue. Fundamentally, the question is, you know, what is the proper role 
of investment firms, banks, and businesses in America. And historically, we have thought about investment firms and banks and businesses as providing certain services, uh, providing certain goods and services, and, and maximizing the value and quality of those goods and services. Um, we, we haven't viewed, uh, the marketplace, uh, as, um, meant to sort of wade into the political fray. Uh, and, and, and as consumers and as pension holders and as investors, we should want a marketplace that provides maximum value and quality. We can decide as a, as a, as a body politic, as a democracy, you know, what policies we want to live under. And we don't need Coca-Cola or Nike or Ticketmaster or, you know, Facebook or any other company, um, you know, putting its thumb on the scale and, and, and trying to influence the political process. Provide us with the goods and services that you are really good at providing and let the democratic process figure out, you know, what positions it wants to take on climate change or on, um, alternative lifestyles or on, um, uh, or on, um, healthcare or whatever, whatever else is going on. Um, so, so it, it's, it's one, it's not a liberal or conservative issue. It's, it's, it's an issue that should affect consumers broadly speaking. And secondly, um, you know, um, uh, I think, I think the marketplace should do what it does best, which is provide goods and services and stay out of, stay out of politics. What do you think is pushing the ESG movement? Do you think it's, it's a really just this genuine impulse to help make the world a better place? Or do you see something, something, some other undercurrents there? Um, well, I think it's a combination of factors. Um, I think that when you look at, um, corporate America, uh, there are, you know, some folks entering into lower and middle management, um, who view, uh, the firm or the corporation as a potential tool for social engineering. And so when they get to their job at the HR department or wherever they, wherever they work in the company, they, they feel this, this desire to take the influence and power of that firm or that company and to point it in the direction of politics. I think that's misguided. I think that's the wrong thing to be doing, but, but there are people, I think, who believe that. There are other people who genuinely believe that, um, ESG is a way to make money. I mean, I think. If you're an ESG consultant. <laughs> if you're an ESG consultant. Or betting against an ESG fund. But also, you know, um, there are a lot of people out there who care about climate and the environment, um, or about, um, other, um, social values and, and there are investment firms who I think made the calculation that in a world where, um, you know, fees for investment funds were all pretty much dead in the same zone and there wasn't a whole lot to distinguish one investment firm for another. Maybe if we have an ESG platform, you know, we can tug at people's heartstrings and get them to invest money with us. Uh, marketing edge. Yeah, marketing edge. So I think there are a lot of different things that might have propelled 
the marketplace to move in the direction of, of an ESG strategy. Um, but ultimately, um, the key question is, you know, do you want businesses, companies, investment firms, banks, do, do you want them making political decisions? Um, do you want them playing a role in the political space? Uh, or do you want them sticking to what historically they've done best, which is providing va- the highest possible value uh, quality in terms of goods and services? Uh, I want to talk a little bit about education and um, eventually law schools and your thoughts on the current state of law schools. But beginning with the current state of our public schools, there's been a tremendous amount of uh, fighting and rancor in Maine uh, and elsewhere, especially in Virginia, over uh, the ideological direction of schools, that's the, these, um, the weird books that they want to have in school libraries. Um, it's transparency, uh, but also gender identity and introducing these ideas to increasingly young students. And one thing that we've noticed, uh, in our r- reporting is that the ACLU has come out against parental rights and school transparency and in defense of the, a lot of these I guess uh, things you wouldn't have expected the ACLU to come out against, say, 15 years ago. Um, so, w- what do you think has happened to the ACLU, and w- what is the what do you think is the path forward for conservatives asserting uh, their culture and their values in public schools? Well, look, as a country, we've we've always had debates about um, culture and society. You know. Um, uh, role of religion, alternative lifestyles, abortion. Um, we've always had hotly contested debates and battles over the social and cultural um, patina of our of our republic. Um. Speaking as someone who who is both a, a conservative and a Catholic, I have always felt that um, the most important governing unit uh, in a society is the family. I think that is the most important governing unit because it's consistent with the natural order for that to be the most important governing unit. And so when you're thinking about, um, you know, what rules and regulations and standards you want to impose or promote, um, I think you have to start by asking yourself, um, you know, is this something that the individual or the family can handle on their own? Um, that doesn't require state intervention. Is this something that's most appropriately handled by the family? Um, and, and then, you know, if there's an argument that it's not for some reason, then, then, then it's fine. Um, you know, have a, have a discussion. But I, I agree with you. I, I, I think there is a, um, there is a, um, Growing interest in diminishing parental rights. I mean, you see it, especially with the transgender stuff. I mean, it seems like there's 
I mean, in the, the things that we've encountered in reporting on the state, there's a specific case in, in Damariscotta uh, that I think you're aware of where, you know, it's the question is literally, can school employees keep secrets from parents? Secrets that have the potential to have long-lasting impacts on the child and uh, change a family dynamic permanently. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I think there is definitely a growing uh, effort to diminish parental rights. Um I think it cuts across um I think it cuts across a lot of different areas. Um uh I think it 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 affects education uh the way in which school boards and towns develop curricula, the extent to which they encourage parental input into what they're doing, the extent to which they are transparent about what those curricula are. I think it does relate to issues of, of sex and gender. Um, you know, again, how much transparency do you want to have in terms of what schools are saying to the kids, what counseling they're giving them? Um, what conversations ought to be off the table and off limits for a school and properly be left to a family, right? I also think, though, you see it in the context of the private sector. I mean, you know, technology, um, you know, is, um, is, is very, a very powerful tool and children are exposed, um, to levels of of content and cultural Instagram, TikTok, yeah, uh, you know the kids, the parents who are putting the iPad or the iPhone in their lap and letting letting that yeah. the babysitter. Well, when you when you give when you give your kid a smartphone, you're literally creating an open door, which allows anything in the world to enter, anything in the world to enter. Um, and, and the private sector hasn't been particularly good at giving parents tools to regulate and monitor, you know, what their children are capable of doing on their smartphones, on various streaming platforms. Um, so, so there are a lot of things that are coming down to bear on parental rights. Um, some by the government, by the state, some by the private sector. And, you know, both the state and the private sector, I think, have, you know, certainly the state has both a legal and a moral obligation to re- respect parental rights. And I think the private sector has a moral obligation to do that, too. Um, and I am very concerned about where all this is headed. Um, uh, and... Um, I think we we need to uh, entrust parents with with the responsibility and authority um, that's only natural for them to have. Are you surprised about the way the ACLU is wading into this contest between students students' rights and I guess the rights of um, government employees at public schools? Um. I mean, would you agree that the ACLU as an organization has um, transformed uh, over, over the last two decades? Yeah, I mean, I think what you're getting at, Steve, is that you've noticed a change in what the ACLU chooses to um, advocate on behalf of. And um, 
I do think that the ACLU has shifted its focus or attention in, in some significant ways over the past 25 or 30 years. When the ACLU first started, it was largely an institution driven by an interest in advancing uh, freedom of speech and expression. Um, mostly political speech and expression, but to some extent it went beyond that. The ACLU slowly waded into other battles, um, reproductive rights, voter ID laws, voter ID laws, transgender lifestyle. Um, you know, it, it has kind of bled into those other areas. It's not altogether clear to me why they have. Um, some of it might be because the left has changed its views on speech. I mean, you know, the ACLU is very good point. In the 90s, the liberals were the people who were worried about censorship. Yeah. You know, the, the battles around music, it was everything should be free speech, but all of a sudden they're the ones who are totally uh, in support of censorship. Yes. Yeah, so on social media or whatever. So what's, what's driving that change? Well, yeah. So the, so the old ACL, ACLU mantra, which was that we'll defend anybody's freedom of speech, gets a little bit complicated in a world where your constituency, which is largely the left, um, no longer really believes in freedom of speech. So what do you do as an institution? Well, if you're principled, you have the principles no matter what, right? Well, and you try to re-educate your constituency. Um, yes, that's one option. And then the other option is to uh, adapt to the changing culture of the left and to kind of slowly move away from that dogged defense of freedom of thought, freedom of speech, and to just go take up other battles um, so that you can keep everybody employed and fat and happy. Um, you know, um, because I, I, I was surprised to see that, um, that, um, that the ACLU was pushing back on parental rights because, you know, parental rights in a way is, is really at the, you know, is really, you know, um, related to freedom of expression. In, the family is an institution that has at its core a set of thoughts, beliefs, um, predispositions. And when a, f- when, when, when a family decides that it's going to, um, express certain content, allow or disallow certain content, structure a conversation about sensitive issues in a certain way or at a certain age, that's really the family, um, um, asserting its expressive rights as, as, as a, as a, as a human institution. And the ACLU is not really defending that. Um, which is curious. And I don't know why except to speculate that, um, they've taken up other causes that they, that they think are, are, um, better, uh, better for direct mail. In keeping in the theme of education, uh, obviously, law schools, our, our elite colleges, are very important in creating um, the people who are going to be our next Clarence Thomases 20, 30 years from now. 
Um, you know that better than anybody having around the Federalist Society being intimately involved in um, kind of shaping that educational culture. And uh, I wonder if what, what's your take on the current state of higher ed right now? Because it seems like every other day you hear a scandal like from Stanford where you have you know, law students who are saying just outrageous things and, 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 you know, doing things and saying things that you think run completely contrary to the values that you would expect a, a law student to have, certainly 10, 15 years ago. Uh, and I know that there's, a, there are some colleges I won't be too specific about, but there are some colleges I know of where, you know, there's only one conservative left and, you know, they, the college doesn't have a plan to replace them with a conservative. The state of higher ed is horrible. Absolutely, positively horrible. Why? Why go to college? Why? Why? Why seek an education? Why seek a higher education? Um. Obviously, to some extent, it's to build various skills. Um, and you know, that's very important if you want to earn a living and raise a family. But as Thomas Jefferson thought, the other reason to send someone to college, particularly liberal arts education, was basically to to cultivate a citizen who was going to appreciate democracy. That was his view. Teach people how to be free. Teach people how to be free. So if you're throwing your kids into colleges that basically um, tell them that um, we're, we're not going to have a rigorous searching inquiry for the truth, Certain issues or subjects are off limits. Um, we're going to harass, intimidate, uh, and embarrass you if you um, express certain viewpoints. Um, and, and we're going to spend an inordinate amount of time on theoretical subjects um, that really don't sharpen your analytical abilities or other skills you might need in the workaday world. Um, you're paying a lot of money for garbage. You really are. Or your your child is taking on an enormous amount of debt that we now know can't just be snapped away by a, nope. a president. No, it, <laughs> no, no. You know, lunch lunch bucket Joe can't just <laughs> cancel everybody's debt. No, we we found that out, much to the chagrin of some people. So um, we, we touched on the affirmative action uh, decision that came down. Um, just a, a question on that. What? So we we know that the state of higher ed, as you said, is terrible. What faith can someone have that this is a decision that's going to be respected by those institutions? Because Harvard was fairly duplicitous about this the entire time, denying that it happened, denying that they were racist against Asians. Then it came out that, well, yes, you were using these personality tests to very much be racist against Asians. So given how, uh, um, I guess, dishonest they were throughout that entire uh, debate, what hope can we have that they're going to respect this decision. Well, let, okay, so two things. Let, let me take you back to the broader higher ed issue and then take that okay. on because because I do think there's there's a couple of important things to be said here. Um, the market works, okay, and what all of these educational institutions are about to face, it's going to happen in the next couple of years, is what, what, what people in the education world call the demographic cliff. There's going to be a precipitous decline in the number of college-age kids. And there is going to be a huge decline in the number of college applications because there just aren't as many children as there used to be of college age. 
Um, right? This is the, the, the result of a decline in, in, um, in birth rates. Yeah, we call it demographic winter in Maine. Okay, demographic winter. So this is the cliff that a lot of colleges are going to face. And a lot of these colleges are going to face very tough choices about what it is that, um, that they want their children to have. Um, and, um, you know, the bottom line is, um, there are going to be a decent number of schools that go out of business. And I'll make a bet that if you're a school that, um, creates a hostile environment, uh, if you're a school that's, um, doesn't have a reputation for really sharpening your kids' minds in a way that's open and civil, um, if you're an institution that doesn't place a premium on real skills, um, you might be in trouble. You're not only in trouble because of the overall demographic cliff, but you're in trouble because the people who were still having kids are relatively more mainstream and conservative, which means they're going to be looking. So where there is still a decent number of your customers are moving right, your customers are moving to the right. And so there are going to be a lot of institutions that are going to get up one morning in the educational space and they're going to say, wow, this demographic has not only diminished, but it's shifted. And so if you want to be a successful institution of higher education over the next five to seven years, my bet would be on those that say, you know what? We're in the business of educating people to think freely and rigorously. We're not in the business of coddling college kids um, to not think freely and rigorously. And we're in the business of giving them sharp analytical skills and other skills they need to be successful in life. Um, we're not in the business of indoctrinating them. Those are the schools that are going to thrive and flourish. And those that don't do that are going to be in distress, thankfully. So that sounds like a change that could have been, uh, you know, if it's, if it's a demographic destiny, sounds like a change that could have already been in the works. So how does the affirmative action decision change that? Do you see it uh, kind of accelerating that shift? Are some colleges going to be thankful that they have an excuse not to adhere to this liberal dogma? I don't know what the reaction is going to be across the university system. My my suspicion is that most institutions are unhappy with the decision because most institutions of higher learning are now in the business of political indoctrination rather than education. So I almost get the sense that some of them feel like their mission as a college is not education, but they're a vehicle for social equality. Like they're, they're supposed to be a tool that brings about racial equity or, or what have you, rather than simply educating people. That may be, that may be the case. Um, I, I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, I think, I think that, um, I think that it's still too early to tell what's going to happen in the wake of these decisions. I think, I think the safe bet is to assume that there are going to be a lot of institutions of higher learning that are going to try to skirt around the issue and find a way to do what they were doing before. Um, uh, you know, look, I mean, you get a big decision like this one that says 
we have a colorblind constitution and these racial preferences are wrong and you can't be doing this. Um, you know, certainly if someone comes along and says, look, I've, I've developed certain character traits because of my race and those character traits have, have, you know, like integrity and forbearance or, or whatever. And, and those have made me able to succeed more. You know, you can look at that construct, but you can't just, you know, um, have people check in the race box. Yes. You know, institutions, there'll be institutions that try to find ways around, um, the decision. And, and this is what happens with every big pronouncement, right? So, so, you know, when, when, for example, the Supreme Court kind of opened the door to more education reform and school choice, teachers unions said, okay, we'll, we'll play death by a thousand paper cuts. We can have school choice and education reform, but we're going to have umpteen regulations that make it really, really hard. And we're going to make sure that, that individuals who want education reform and school choice have to engage in, you know, you know, um, trench warfare litigation. There's, like, there's a cap on charter, charter schools and the commission yeah. is stacked with people who hate charter schools. Yeah. So now, you know, in the school choice regime, you're, you're doing, you know, you know, piecemeal litigation here, there and everywhere. And, and, and that may well be what happens in the context of the Supreme Court's decision here and the, you know, in, in relation to racial preferences. Okay, there's this broad pronouncement and now schools are going to see what, how they can press the envelope, how they can evade it. And so you'll have, you'll have this sort of wave of secondary litigation to sort of sort all of this stuff out. So it could take a very long time for the full vision of a colorblind admission. Oh yeah, process. this, this issue is far from over. How, how long do you think it's going to take for this principle to trickle into faculty selections and even the, the, the private corporate world? It's, it's going to take a long time because there will be resistance from, um, the liberal elite. Um, and, and it will just take a long time. Now, this is an interesting issue, right? Because, um, here polling data is pretty clear. Okay. I mean, 70 plus percent of Americans do not like race conscious admissions. They do not like race conscious hiring. Um, and so this is an area where, um, while liberal elite might press this issue, um, it is not a politically salient issue for, for Democrats on the left. And in addition to that, it's one where because of the court of public opinion, um, Litigation is a much more successful strategy, and it, it's not just—I I don't think just the uh, elite liberals who are believing in this. I mean, every superintendent in this state, every principal in this state, believes that uh, color, the, a colorblind principal is racist. I mean, it's—it's it's, is what they say when you listen to them. It's the the Ibrahim um, uh, Kendi idea that you uh, you can't simply be not racist; you must be actively anti-racist. It's this kind of idea that is replete throughout Maine's education. Uh, uh, all of the employees believe this. No, look, as with every issue, there there are always two questions. One is what is legally required, and and really, in 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 terms of my own professional interests and background, that for me has always been the most important question. What is legally required? And the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution requires colorblindness. Period. It's clear as day. Okay, so, so whatever you may think, 
from the standpoint of prudence, policy, moral justification, intellectual force. The law says what it says. And, and that's what the law requires. So, so colorblindness is what we have to live by as a country because that is what our constitution demands. Now, I can make moral and intellectual arguments for why that's the right decision. And other people will disagree with that and make other, other, other arguments. But, but this is, this starts as a pure legal question and a pretty clear one. And I'm glad the court has finally, um, had the opportunity to clarify it. Um, you know, uh, you can get to the normative issues and I have no objection to people debating those and you can have a fair debate about them. I mean, there's a lot of questions, and, and you know, Clarence Thomas brings this up at a number of decisions he's written over the years relating to racial preferences, going way back, where, you know, th- there's a fair question to be had as to whether, you know, racial preferences and quotas have helped or hurt the intended beneficiaries. It's kind of the same debate we had over the years regarding welfare, okay? And, and you know, it's it's a debate worth having, um, you know, uh I think he, he makes some very, very powerful points regarding, um, you know, the, the, the practical problems associated with a system of race conscious decision making. Um, he doesn't trust the state to do those things because of his, um, experience with segregation. And he thinks that that's a big problem. Um, but in any case, you can have that normative debate, but, but, and, and I think we should, as as a country. Um, uh, and and I think we need to take very seriously the question: Does this help or hurt the intended beneficiaries? I mean, we can have a debate about that. But first and foremost, what people need to understand is, like it or not, our constitution, our law, says that we are a colorblind society, and you um, you either accept the rule of law or you don't. And, and for me, that's the first order and most important question. And so what these schools need to do is they need to get in line and they need to stop using race as a basis for admissions. And ultimately, um, they need to stop using race as a basis for faculty hiring and other things. Um, we can still have a debate about whether our country should have a different legal standard, but that will require changing our constitution because our constitution is like it or not a colorblind constitution period well leonard i I appreciate you being so generous with your time i I do want to hit on before we uh uh, get up and move out of the sun um how does somebody who is so uh stridently conservative um a very uh religious catholic how do you find yourself in maine in bar harbor of all places you know, one of the least religious states in the union. Things are obviously the trajectory politically of the state uh, is headed very much left at a time when you, you could argue that the, the the other the opposite is happening in some other states. Um, so, what what drew you to the state? How did you make the decision to to relocate here? Well, we we have a, a long history here, um, not as long as some people do, but but we we started coming here twenty years ago. Uh, we had a dear family friend at a house here in, on, on Mount Desert Island. 
Uh, and she invited us to, to use her home when she wasn't there, and we started coming for vacations. Um, and, of course, we were first attracted by the beauty, right? I mean, this is an incredible place. I mean, I'm sure most Mainers have been here or are aware of it. Um, there's few places in this country where beautiful mountains meet the ocean, and it's just spectacular, you know? So uh, the beauty first attracted us, and the peacefulness, right? Um you know, but but as we started coming here more and more, we started realizing that the natural beauty wasn't the most important attraction. Um, the real beauty here is its people. This little town that we live in is a is a wonderful place. Um, the year-round residents are hardworking, thoughtful generous, kind people who believe in, who largely believe in, 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 um, you know, um, just putting in a good, a good hard day's work, raising their families. Um, believe me, they're not all conservatives. They're also not all liberals. Um, but they're good, they're good, they're good people. Shopkeepers on Main Street, um, the folks who um, work at construction at, and, and caretaking and landscaping, and the folks that work at the park, um, these are these are these are hardworking, good people. And we began to become very uh, attached to um, the people more than just the beauty, more than just the natural beauty. And when COVID hit, uh, we came up here. To try to have a more stable lifestyle. Of course, I think you and thirty thousand other people. <laughs> That's right. Um, although we already had a bit of a yeah, footprint yeah. here. Um, I was I was trying to buy a house in Maine at the time, and I was competing with all the people. Sorry, who didn't about, have sorry about that. Uh, we had our house already, but um, but um, but but you know, after a few months of being here, we realized that we loved this place because of its people, because of the sense of community. Um, it was a small town that really represented a lot of what makes America great. Um, and, uh, and so we, we, we were very drawn to it for that reason. And what we slowly began to realize is, unlike a big metropolis, um, which we used to live in, well, we, and we still do a little bit, but we're here about 10 months of the year. Unlike a big metropolis, um, this is a place where, um, you can truly um, help people in need in a very direct way. You can ascertain what a community's needs are, what a, what 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 a person's needs are, um, because there's not a lot of white noise, and because it's such a small community uh, and so dependent upon everybody, you can you can actually help to improve um, people's um, emotional, spiritual, and, and um, temporal condition. So, you know, we love we love the church here. Um, it's a church that struggles um, uh, geographically and in terms of its its sheer numbers, but um, it's a place where we think, um, you know, we can we can we can help. Um, we love the town here, um, um, and we want. 
we want to be, um, you know, productive and, um, helpful and, and, um, creating a, creating a, a wonderful life for, not only for ourselves, but for people around us. Um, so that's, you know, that's, that's what, um, what brought us here. Um, yes, the state, um, has its, um, you know, um, predispositions, um, politically. It, it, it just passed, a, a probably the most, uh, um, liberal abortion law in the country. Um, I was very surprised to learn that not only is there now the opportunity for abortion up until birth, but that there's, there's, there's no provision for parental notification or parental consent. I was, I was shocked to see that. They also, they voted against, uh, Democrats in the Senate voted against an amendment that would have prohibited the sale of, uh, fetal remains, uh, from a, from an abortion. I heard that. I heard that. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously surprised and shocked by that. But, um, but look, you know, um, how, how do, how do you, com- how do you combat, how do you combat that? Well, you know, how, how do you, how do you deal with that? Well, you deal with that through compassion and love and civil discourse. And so what we want to do while we're here in the state is, um, I'm not going to go down to Augusta, you know, and pick at the state house. We're going to live the life we live with our children and, and we're going to, you know, try to help women in need and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to try to convince people Civilly and through our own actions about the dignity and worth of human life from birth until natural death. We're going to pray for people and we're going to, we're going to be there to help when we can. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, the hope is that people, um, you know, people come around, um, to a, you know, to a different position. And, and, and this takes me back to what you first started talking about, which was, you know, some of the protests that are taking place about abortion here and, and elsewhere. Um, you know, um, uh, all the Dobbs decision ultimately did was it kicked this issue into the states. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Have any of them come by to thank you since Janet Mills signed LD 1619 into law? Because but for the Dobbs decision, there would be no uh, uh, legalization of late-term abortion and a dramatic expansion of uh, uh, abortion in Maine. A court that interprets the law according to its text and original meaning is sometimes going to be a blessing for what you believe in and is sometimes going to be a curse. I will always remember a wonderful, funny story that Justice Nino Scalia used to tell as you may know, when the issue of flag burning came before the U.S. Supreme Court, um, he ended up voting uh, to uh, um, strike down a law that prohibited burning the flag, um, which surprised many people. It didn't surprise me, but it surprised many people. One person it surprised, I thought, I think, was, was his wife. So the next morning after the decision came down, of course, it was in all the newspapers, and he comes down for breakfast, and at his place at the table is um, the Washington Times, and of course the 
the front page of the Times has the headline, you know, court strikes down flag-burning prohibition, Scalia, you know, votes with majority. Assuming a picture of a burning flag also. Yes, and, and, and there is Mrs. Scalia at the stove making his scrambled eggs, humming, it's a grand old flag. <laughs> and, 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 you know, this is, and, and, and what I, he always used to tell this story to remind people that, um, the Constitution doesn't always give you what you want. Okay. The Constitution gives you, um, uh, the freedom and space, um, to make the Republic what you want it to be. And Maine has chosen, uh, a certain course. And I don't always agree politically with some of the things it's chosen to do, but it's chosen a certain course and other states have chosen another course. And, and Mainers should, should, um, should be glad that we have a constitutional system that constrains the power of the national government and that gives it an opportunity to be what it wants to be. Um, and, you know, we'll all work together in trying to, um, um, you know, reach, reach common ground on the important issues of the day. And where we don't, you know, one side will win and a disappointed side will lose. And the disappointed side will continue to have the opportunity to civilly persuade the other side to try them. And that's the great thing about, um, our American system of self-government. And, you know, I've dedicated my, my life and a lot of my friends and people that surround us have dedicated their lives to trying to preserve that system and and um hopefully uh you know over time more and more people will see the value in uh in uh in that calling and you know for themselves well i mean i think i think that's a, a great place to leave it unless you've got anything else you'd like to touch on no i just again steve i want to thank you um for what um for what MPI and and the main wire does here in Maine, um, it's um, uh, I mean, look, I mean, you 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 all obviously approach things from the free market center right perspective, uh, and as you've pointed out, that's not always where Mainers end up. Um, but I hope that Mainers appreciate the fact that you're you're creating dialogue. That helps to ultimately search for the truth and, and hopefully helps people get to the right position on the issues of the day. Um, and so I, I, I appreciate what you're doing. And, um, again, that's why we're, um, you know, I'm happy to support your efforts. Well, I, I appreciate that. I never, I appreciate your support. And I would say that, you know, if there, if there was any, um, uh, liberal or progressive or communist who vehemently disagrees with everything they just heard, there's an open door to come on and have the, the same kind of an open conversation. Well, that's great. I'm glad you feel that way because that ultimately is what uh, uh, is what uh, what our country stands for. So, well, thank you, Steve. Really appreciate it. Thank you.